that, thank you though, thank you, uh, the hymn, you know, the, the, one of the lines in the hymn speaks of Jesus coming and dying for Adam's helpless race, right? And I know that that's uh, consistent with what the theme for Vacation Bible School is, the amazing race is uh, a reference to the human race. And I'm sitting here right now staring at the giant Bible verse on the back wall. I'll just read it. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're all from Adam's helpless race. And they'll all be able to stand the ones that are justified will be able to stand justified all because of what Jesus did, what the Lamb did in dying for us and rising from the dead. The world likes to divide itself according to cultures and what we call races and ethnic groups and everything else, but really, we're all in the same boat, aren't we? We all have our lives given to us by God and we're all accountable to the righteousness of God, which he codified in his law and even called one nation, the Israelites, to be the representatives of that in the, in the world. And uh, their purpose being to usher in God himself when he was born of a virgin, the Lord Jesus, who then died for our sins and rose from the dead. And we're all in the same boat. We need the grace of God to bring us salvation. So, and that's what Jesus did. He gave himself for Adam's helpless race, which is all of us. James chapter 3, please. I'm going to read the entire chapter because, well, one, it's short. It won't take a lot of time. And, and number two... Uh, it really, as I made reference several times last week to, it really ties together uh, one entire thought. The chapter starts off by talking about not many of us desiring to be teachers and launches into how difficult it is for someone to master self-control over the tongue. Right? We all stumble in many things, but the person who can control his tongue, that's the mature, complete person. Um, so then, when we get down to verse uh, 13, where we're going to start today, then the whole thought is tied together. It's not showing wisdom, being qualified to teach others, A possessor of true wisdom is not someone who necessarily can just talk. Real wisdom is found in how a person acts. And this passage of Scripture makes that so, so clear for us. Let me say a prayer to the Lord together for us. Dear Father in heaven, thank you that we have this time together here now. I pray, Lord God, that as we read and study your word together today, that, Lord, we would be able to receive these great truths that you have for us. And I pray, Lord God, you'd strengthen us and help us to be, as this letter tells us, 
doers of your word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Here is, I think I'll go ahead and just read the chapter in its entirety first. Ready? We're going to focus on verse 13, but this sets it up well. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they're so large and driven by fierce winds, they're turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, our tongues, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt, water, and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What we do with our mouths and our words, what we do with our lives, all of it is encapsulated in this chapter today. Of course, the first part of it we went through last week It bears a bit of a review just to set up what comes after it. But it really focused on the tongue and how because those who teach are subject to a stricter judgment, we ought to be very guarded about how we use our tongues and be very attentive to what we say with our mouths and what we use our words for. Even to the point of you ought to like examine yourself before you take on teaching other people. 
to see that you've risen to a level of self-control over what you do with your words. But then when we get to verse 13, the, the discussion is expanded. See, here's the progression. Here's what happens. People learn. And people acquire a certain degree of knowledge. And maybe over the course of months or years, they develop a certain knack, a certain eloquence to be able to pass on some of the things that they've learned. And so they begin to talk and they begin to speak. And what very often happens is people who acquire a certain degree of eloquence are perhaps because of how they speak and how they're able to speak thought of as wise. And we really need to listen to these people. James is showing us the real way that Christianity works. Christianity is not just about our talk. Christianity is not just about our ability to argue and to make words and to to conquer people intellectually and, and things like this. It's interesting that from the earliest days of Christianity, we were warned in God's Word about the peril of being a talker and not a doer. Is this not really what we're seeing here in chapter 3, simply a reflection of what we've already heard in chapter 2. What was chapter 2 about? Faith without works is dead, right? What, was being, what two things were being compared in chapter 2? A profession of faith that was merely words with the actual life of faith, which was portrayed in someone's work. What was being compared was Abraham saying, Yes, Lord, I'll do that with Abraham actually taking Isaac and taking him where he was supposed to go, right? Rahab saying, yes, you people are the people that God has chosen and everyone's afraid of you, and Rahab actually taking the spies and hiding them, right? And all of that built on what chapter 1 told us. Faith without works is dead, it says in chapter 2. Chapter 1 told us, be a doer of the word and not hear only. You're seeing a theme as these words and sentences go by in the book of James, I hope, that is being compiled, adding layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. Your words are important, but what you do is really, really important. Your words are important, but if all you have are words, if all you are is a talker, if all you are is the possessor of an opinion, there's nothing particularly special about that. Anybody can be that. Anybody can do that. As this passage shows us, you don't even need to be spiritual to do that. To be someone who just talks, but doesn't have conduct that's reflective of true Christianity. That's a wisdom that's not from above. It's from beneath. It's sensual. It's demonic, it even says in the passage of Scripture here. No, what we're told, chapter 1, be a doer of the word, not hearer only. Chapter 2, faith without works is dead. Chapter 3, who is really wise? Show it. Show it. How? 
by good conduct. Come to that a lot in the New Testament, don't we? So, I beg your pardon if it sounds like I'm just repeating myself all the time, but I try very hard just to go verse by verse through the Bible, so if I'm repeating myself a lot, it's because the book does, and I hope you can see that. But we find ourselves constantly coming back to that. The first part of the chapter showed us the danger of the unbridled tongue and all the harm that the unbridled tongue can do. Perhaps the height of the hypocrisy is that the uncontrolled, unbridled tongue can say, praise the Lord, and then turn around and find a human who is made in the image of the Lord that you just praised and tear him or her up. Blessing and cursing from the same mouth. Bitter and fresh water from the same spring can't happen. Blessing and cursing from the same mouth ought not to be so, James said. We're told that, and then we're told in verse 13, who's really wise. Well, the first part of the chapter, as I said, showed us that you ought to be someone who ought to be able to bridle your tongue. You've got to have self-control over your words. And then, chapter verse 13, what does it tell us? It tells us that your wisdom is not just your words. See? The first part of the chapter says, get control of your tongue. The second part of the chapter says, it's not just about your tongue. Right? So, there you go. First part of the chapter says, don't endeavor to be a teacher if you're not going to have self-control over this. And the second part of the chapter says, and by the way, it's not just about that anyway. It's about how you live. Christian, listen, I, I could say one thing and we could close the books and go home. Don't get too encouraged because I am going to talk more than that. But, but all I have to point out to you is this. When Jesus came, was his life and his ministry just words? Yes or no? When you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is it simply a summary of the things that Jesus taught? It is very much what Jesus taught. But is that all that it is? No, we see what he did too, don't we? Right? Our Lord, who we are called to imitate, our Lord, who is to be the example of everything in our lives, was a talker and a doer. And that's who we're supposed to be like in everything. It is of no great commendation within the realm of Christianity to simply be a good talker and not do anything. And it makes me fear for the modern age and for the modern church, which is filled with talkers who don't do. We're very diligent about reminding people that you can't be saved by doing anything. And so we're correct, right? You don't want to be just a doer who's trying to justify yourselves by your doing. We make that point very clear, and we're good at that. But the flip side of the coin, we're not as good at making. For some reason, we're afraid of it. And that is that there is a certain amount of doing that is the truest reflection of what? Here it says wisdom. 
It's the truest reflection of what you really know and what you really believe is how you act. It's what you do. It's how you are. Your character. Your character that is formed in you by God, right, shows up in how you live. God works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. He's working in you. You're called to what? Work that out. Work out your own salvation. Live out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's the working out that reveals the working in. It's the living out by you that portrays the working in by God. Who are we to pick one over the other? Who are we to say one's important and one's not? Who are we to say, yes, God is sovereign and works in us. But then what we do doesn't matter when the Bible clearly is presenting both sides of the coin as one comprehensive picture. We're not at all saved by works. But faith without works is dead. And that's the simple truth. When I read this second paragraph now, all of that that I just did was just to try to tie the whole chapter together as one. Let's go ahead and focus on just the second half of this now. It starts with a question, who is wise and understanding among you? And I want to read just this paragraph again, and I want to see if you can pick out what the important concept is. It's a single word. Ready? Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What's the important thing that James is trying to teach us about here? What is it? Wisdom. Wisdom, right? The passage starts with a question. Who's really wise among you? And then the rest of the paragraph is used to define for us two kinds of wisdom. Did you, have, did you know that? The Bible here teaches about two kinds of wisdom. And one of them, of course, is like a false wisdom. It's not real wisdom at all. There is one true wisdom. And that's really what James is trying to show us here. He's trying to show us that the truly wise person is not just the one who can open his mouth and bring certain things out, bring out arguments that he thinks other people can't conquer, etc. and so forth. True wisdom is something else. The question is, who is wise and understanding among you? And notice the link between wisdom and understanding there, right? I have heard many preachers and I have echoed it myself in the past. Define wisdom as knowledge and understanding applied. That's what real wisdom is. Solomon was the wisest of all the people, right, that that we know. Solomon asked God for wisdom and God gave him all sorts of other blessings on top of that because God was so 
impressed by the fact that Solomon recognized the need for wisdom to do what he was called to do. But where is Solomon's wisdom seen? The book of Proverbs? Sure. Ecclesiastes? Sure. Song of Solomon? Sure. But is not Solomon's wisdom also seen in how he built and how he governed and how he dealt and how he related even internationally with other relations? Israel as a nation existed in the height of its glory under Solomon. Even a glory that superseded that of his father David before him. A glory that will not be matched until it is completely eclipsed when Jesus returns. Right? How Solomon was wise was not just with his words and not just with the eloquence with which he spun Proverbs for us. The wisdom of Solomon was seen in how he acted. And the flip side of the coin is, towards the end of Solomon's life, we saw how that wisdom started to go astray. Right? He still knew everything. His words were still written down. All of his proverbs were still there for anybody to read. But Solomon liked having a lot of women around. He's famous for that. And Solomon allowed these women who were often from foreign nations and often became part of his house because of dealings he had with other nations, he allowed them to worship their gods who were not his gods. And the ramifications of that were that when Solomon died, Israel split in half. Right? Because wisdom was not just the words that he could spit out. Wisdom and the lack of wisdom was shown in his actions. That's a lesson for us. The New Testament tells us that the things that are written in the Old Testament about Israel are written for our learning, brothers and sisters. Learn that Solomon's wisdom and his lack of wisdom were not just seen in his words. They were seen in what he did and in what he didn't do. And here we are in James on the subject of not many of you should try to be teachers. Having been cautioned about the use of our tongue, now being shown that wisdom is not truly reflected only in the tongue. Wisdom, true wisdom is reflected when someone who does know things and is able to teach and is able to convey things also has the things that he knows and teaches and understands demonstrated in his conduct. Not a boastful, selfish, proud conduct. But what does it say? In the meekness of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is truly wise? Who truly understands things? The ways of the Lord. What pleases God? God Himself. God's Word. Who really understands? Who is really wise? What are, what's the answer to the question? question? Look at the first three words. Let Him what? Show. Not let him say. Not let him write. Not let him tweet. Not let him post. Not let him boast. Not let him argue. Let him 
show. What? By what? Good conduct. Not let God show through him. Let him show. Yes, all the strength and guidance for everything we do comes from being a branch that is securely affixed to the vine by faith and by a solid, consistent, day-by-day relationship with the Lord. Without Him, we can do nothing. But with Him, we are doers. Right? Let Him show by good conduct that His what? Works. Let Him show by good conduct that His works Good conduct and works are like a restatement of the same thing. What James is doing is he's talking about the way a Christian lives their lives and the fact that a Christian devotes himself to being of service to the Lord. He is talking here about a Christian's service to God, a Christian's faithful service to the gospel, which manifests itself even in the basic things in life, and even in devotion to things like a vacation Bible school or, 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 or preaching the gospel or things that you may be like devoted to in your church for the purpose of serving God. The truly wise among you is the person who serves. The truly wise among you is the person who shows. The truly wise person of the among, among you is the person who conducts himself. The truly wise person among you is the person who does works. And how are they done? In the meekness of wisdom. There's that word wisdom again. What is wisdom? Wisdom is that which we understand to be true and we apply it to our lives. And notice what it says. Let his works be shown in, not just in wisdom, but in what? In the meekness of wisdom. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. Jesus was the meek one of all the meek ones, right? Yet he's the most glorious of everyone. What is meekness? It is lowliness. It is humility. In other words, contrast this with the first part of the chapter. Looking with the carnal eye, we might assume that the most eloquent with his words is the most qualified to teach. When in actuality, what we're talking about is not eloquence or boastfulness or a command presence or power or great authoritarianism, the ability to manipulate people. No, the truly wise one is the person who's what? Humble. In the humility of wisdom, right? In other words, we know how to live, and so we learn and we quietly apply ourselves to conducting ourselves in righteousness before God. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by good conduct, that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. See? Now, the rest of this paragraph compares wisdom with wisdom. Because there's false wisdom and there's true wisdom. Or as James puts it, there's wisdom that's from above and there's wisdom that's from beneath. There is wisdom that is from God on high. There is wisdom that is from Satan himself. 
There is wisdom that comes to you because you have a relationship with God and you walk closely with Him and you seek Him. There is a relationship that there is a wisdom that simply comes from your carnal desires and pleasures and from this world. And these two things are contrasted because the person who ought to teach and the person that every Christian should ascribe to be is not just the person who talks, it is the person who walks in wisdom and the person who walks in the right kind of wisdom. A wisdom that starts with a humility. He shows by his good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Then in verse 14, you see there's a but that starts verse 14. And then you see in verse 17, there's a but that starts verse 17. So we have a couple of contrasts coming up here. So starting in verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. May I offer somewhat of a loose paraphrase. If you have bitterness and you're really proud, right? I mean, self-seeking is the opposite of meekness of wisdom, right? It's the opposite. That's why the word but is there. If you have bitterness, envy, enviousness, and what you're really about is just yourself, self-seeking in your hearts, who cares what you have to say? That's the point, right? Because the chapter started off by talking about our use of our tongue and our words. But if all, if all you're about is yourself, and it's about promoting yourself, and it's about your pride, and about you getting your way, what does it matter what you say? If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. Where is this wisdom from? Look what it says in verse 15. This wisdom does not descend from above. In other words, this is not from God. Humility is a reflection of someone who truly knows God and loves God. A person who cares that his conduct honors God, learns and understands and with all meekness and lowliness and wisdom, lives and works and serves, not seeking himself, but seeking only for the glory of God. That person is wise. Right? The person who may have all of the knowledge and all of the eloquence and all of the talent in the world, but harbors bitterness, is envious, seeks after him or herself. There's nothing wise about that at all. Or, if you want to say it is wise, it's not a wisdom that's from God. It's a wisdom that comes from quite another source. And not, not a source that should be sourced in anything that's done in the name of Christ. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above and there's a little there's three words here but is earthly sensual and demonic and may i say to you that those three words 
pretty much cover everything that you want to stay away from. Earthly. That refers to it being a wisdom that is simply reflective of the fact that you have picked up how you think and how you act from the world around you. You have learned the ways of the world and you are governed by the interests of the world and you act according to the values of the world. That's not how in the church we're supposed to live. We're actually called to come out from among the world and to be separate. We're actually called to live different than the world. We're actually called not to marry our hearts to this world because this world is doomed. But when you look around at the world and you see what the world is driven by, the love for pleasure, the love for entertainment, the love for money, the love for possessions, the love for fame, the love for self-exaltation, the love to achieve and acquire without any regard for the expense or cost that it may be with regards to ramifications to other people, individuals in your lives, other families, even on a national level, other nations. This is what the world values. Give me what I want. And I will say or do whatever I need to say or do to get it. Earthly wisdom. It's not how it works in the family of God. Sensual. What does sensual have to do with? Sensual has to do with merely satisfying myself. Sensual. Carnal. Lustful. I do the things that I do simply to satisfy all of the physical and emotional urges I have within my own being. Right? Earthly and sensual are related to one another because the earth is so sensually driven. Right? But earthly means, ready? Earthly means I learn my value system and my worldview from the world around me and I absorb it. Sensual means it comes from within me and my own lusts and my own desires. That's why chapter 4 starts off by saying what? Where do wars and fights come from among you? Don't they come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? That's a war that's inside every single one of us. But when our wisdom, which is how we act in response to what we really know and believe, when our wisdom, that is our conduct, is driven by our own sensual desires, that is from within us, that's not from above. That's not from God. Earthly wisdom is not from God. Sensual wisdom is not from God. And now the third of these three things, perhaps the most extreme, demonic. This really goes far. In fact, if you really stop and think about it, it's probably shocking that James even uses this word, that James even goes there, right? That James even talks about demonic wisdom. Because you may think to yourself, why would a Christian need to be warned about demonic wisdom? 
Are there any examples of what we would call demonic wisdom in the Bible? Well, you can think right off the top of your head of the two most important ones, right? Because think of the two most prominent times where Satan is heard to speak in the Bible. Where are they? I would say one was in the Garden of Eden, and I would say the other was when Jesus was tempted. There are others, like when he goes before the throne of God uh, in the beginning of the book of Job and things like this. But what would demonic wisdom be? Predominantly, demonic wisdom is a twisting of the truth. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. That's what Satan tried to do when Jesus was tempted, to twist the truth to appeal in some way to a person, right? What does Genesis say Satan tried to do? He went to the woman and he asked her, has God really said, has God said you shall, I mean, she says God told us we can eat anything we want, but we can't eat that. You know, has he really said that? Has he indeed? And then then comes the demonic wisdom. God knows that if you eat that, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. Then what does it say? It says what? She saw that it was desirable and good for food. So so Satan brought out a nugget of information to her. Has God really said that? You know what? God just knows that if you eat that, you're going to know good and evil like he does. Hmm. That little twisting of the truth, that questioning of God's authority and God's word and that twisting of the truth caused an activation in her spirit of her own desires which corrupted the simple command that she knew from God and and I'm saying her because that's how the account goes but you know Adam didn't do anything to stop it in fact Adam gladly participated in it when given the opportunity so you know that's why the hymn that we sang just before the Sermon talks about Jesus dying for Adam's helpless race, right? It's all of us. That's demonic wisdom. You know what else is demonic wisdom? Demonic wisdom is like when Satan speaks to Jesus. Turn the stones into bread. Even the quotation of Scripture. You know, the psalm says that his angels have charge over you lest you dash your foot against a stone. Go ahead, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. The Bible says that God won't let anything bad happen to you. That's demonic wisdom that people really today, they even kind of embrace. You will occasionally, I'm sad to say it, but I'm saying it because I want us all, myself included, to be warned. But I have known of people who have walked off into very self-destructive beliefs and self-destructive conduct Because in their thinking, they thought to themselves something very similar to that. God wants me to be happy, and therefore, if I'm not happy, then this thing must not be from God. And all sorts of reckless behavior is entertained and is engaged in. Like throwing yourself off the pinnacle of a temple because the Bible says God won't let the the angels of God won't let anything bad happen to you. Well, Jesus, operating in the meekness of wisdom, understood that and said what? I'm not going to tempt God like that, right? And then, and then you know, the overt, well, hey, you know, the overt demonic wisdom. Here's all the kingdoms of the world. Look at you. No food for 40 days. Look at you. 
Look at me. Here's all the kingdoms of the world. They're mine and you can have them all if you forget about God and worship me. This is my realm. You left God's realm. You're in my realm now. And it's all yours if you'll just worship me. Demonic wisdom. Compromise and get what you want. Demonic wisdom. Straight from Satan himself. What do earthly wisdom, sensual wisdom, and demonic wisdom all have in common? They scratch a notoriously deadly human itch known as pride. I deserve this. I want this and I deserve this. And so we act and govern our lives strictly around getting what we want. What did the beginning of this passage say? The exact opposite. Who's really wise? The one who shows by his good conduct that his works are done in the meekness. That's the opposite of pride. The meekness of wisdom. So life as a Christian isn't just about talk. Because talk without conduct is empty. We've already seen that. But talk can also be manipulated by wisdom that is false. Wisdom that is sought and acquired and acted on because of pride. That's what James is getting at here. For when envy, he goes into verse 16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. What is that? That's the manifest evidence of the false wisdom. What is the manifest evidence? How do you know earthly Wisdom, sensual wisdom, demonic wisdom is at work because of the fruit. That's what he says. When you're in a culture of envy and you're in a culture of self-seeking, confusion and every evil thing are there. That's where it starts. You see how pride in the heart of the human is the root of everything bad. Everything. How we talk. How we're willing to push the envelope with our conduct and just do what we want. We're willing to entertain that evil thought, do that wicked thing without any thought of the consequence of the effect that it may have like the spark kindles the big fire. We're able to take that thing, do that thing, say that thing, take that swipe, make that comment.
withhold ourselves from Christian service. It's all rooted in pride. It's a lack of wisdom and true, true wisdom and true understanding. Because real wisdom and real understanding are the ones who show by good conduct that their works are done in the meekness or the humility of wisdom. And that's what we want to shoot for as Christians. That's what he goes on to say then in verse 17. Let me just talk through the rest of this. I have a couple more points to make. In verse 17, so now we get another but, right? So the passage, you see what the passage has done. It's like flip the coin twice. You start on one side of the coin, then you flip it over, then you flip it back over to where you started. That's basically what this paragraph does, right? It shows us in the beginning of it, real wisdom and real understanding is shown in humble living. Flips the coin over and draws our attention to earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom, which leads to nothing but envy, self-seeking, confusion, and every evil thing. Then flips the coin back over to show us what? To show us that real, true wisdom and understanding that the passage started with. Verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above, you see the contrast there, right? In verse... Uh, 15, it talked about wisdom not descending from above. Now in verse 17, it talks about wisdom that is from above. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And then verse 18 there is special attention given to one of the things on that list, which is the idea of being peaceable. So we'll come back to that. Leave verse 18 off for a minute. But verse 17 gives us wonderful characteristics of real wisdom. Tie it all together with the first half of the chapter. Here's the people who ought to be heard. Here's the people who ought to teach. Here's the people who ought to have an influence and impact on the lives of others. Here's the people who are able to bridle their tongues and have control over their tongues because it shows up in the rest of their conduct as well. Right? Wisdom from above. The first thing that wisdom is from above is what? It's pure. It's pure. I don't think what's being referred to here is the purity of the person as much as it is the purity of the wisdom itself. The wisdom from above is pure. That is what? The wisdom that is from above is derived from my walk with God. And that alone. It's in contrast to the previous sentence. The wisdom from beneath comes from the world, comes from my own sensual pleasure, comes even from Satan himself. But the wisdom that's from above is free of the influence. That's what purity is. Purity is freedom from any polluting or corruptive influence. 
It's a similar concept to holiness, purity. The wisdom that is from above is free from the influence of my pride. The wisdom that is from above is free from being influenced by what the world says is virtuous or right or wrong. The wisdom that is from above is not based on what is popular in the culture and is manipulated through media and through other means. Put forth through schools, from kindergarten all the way through college. Here's what's good. Here's what's right. You know, every form of immorality today seems to be justified as moral. Wisdom that is from above is first of all pure. That is, it's from God and nobody else and nothing else. That's where I get real wisdom from. It's not from me. It's not from the world. It's not from the devil. It's from God. That's why now you open up, you swing open the door for all sorts of exhortations here. It's why you're called to be filled with the Spirit and to not quench the Spirit. It's why you're told that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's why Christians are told not to forsake the assembling of themselves together, but rather gather together and stir each other up to love and to good works. It's because the wisdom that comes from walking in the disciplines, the devotional habits that God has called us to, the wisdom that comes from that is the groundwork that is laid in your heart and in your mind for then how you ought to live your lives and conduct yourselves. It is pure. I get my marching orders from God. I get my instruction from the truth of God. I get what I value and believe from God and from His Word. Right? I get my attitude towards my life and towards other people from God, from walking closely with Jesus. It influences me and causes me to look and to respond and to think, to feel, and ultimately to act the way that I do. Pure wisdom. Pure wisdom is that which comes purely from God. Purely from my walk with Him. Does that mean that I can't learn anything from anybody else? Of course not. But what I'm able to do because I walk closely with God is I'm able to sift. The biblical word is discern. I'm able to discern good from bad. I'm able to discern truth from error. I'm able to discern righteousness from wickedness. I'm able to discern when I'm being fed a load of junk and when I'm being taught and shown something that is truly good and worthwhile. But real wisdom that is from above that is from God, is first of all pure. It's not diluted by earthliness, sensuality, or even demonic influence. But then there's another, there's more on this list of then characteristics. It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, which you can count as two, I think, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Just briefly, I think the proper way to read that 
and to think about it is to briefly think about each one of those things, right? And the idea of peaceable is a person who is able to facilitate and live at peace with people around them. We're actually told in the New Testament where it's at all possible, live at peace with all men. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Let me come back to that because in the next verse, he makes a statement specifically about this idea of being peaceable. So of the things in this list, the idea of being peaceable is the one that he elaborates on in the next sentence. So let's just save a little bit of time for that. Gentle, right? The real wisdom that is from God causes the characteristic of gentleness to be at work in the Christian. The true, wise Christian, the person who I want to listen to, the person whose words matter to me, the person who is truly walking in a wisdom that is from above, is a person who in their character, in their conduct, in their works, they're gentle. They don't run roughshod through life, just walking over everyone else, saying absolutely anything to get their way, doing anything without any conscience to get their way. No. The person is gentle. Real wisdom manifests itself in a gentle way of living. Willing to yield. There's that humility at work again. Right? In an instance where maybe there's a conflict. I mean, speaking of yielding implies that we're talking about some sort of dispute or conflict, right? Real wisdom is that the person, maybe for the sake of peace, maybe this is the idea of a person picking their battles, you know, a person who's able to choose what's really important to dig your heels in over. Is it really necessary that I involve myself so deeply in this and fight for my corner, right? No, the person who is actually wise is willing to yield. The world doesn't think that. You know, the world admires the person, and we, we talk about it as some great virtue, you know, that in every small speck, tiny little thing that doesn't even matter, a person just digs their, we admire them as holding their convictions. Now look, there are certain things we're not willing to yield, right? The truth of the gospel. Not willing to yield about that. But when stuff doesn't really matter, can you discern it? Can you, for the sake of peace, can you, for the sake of unity, can you, for the sake of love, can you, for the sake of the gospel, Yield anything. The Bible is telling us here that real wisdom for above, real wisdom from above, is willing to yield. Full of mercy. Right? These read like the Beatitudes, don't they? Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Hey man, James was Jesus' half-brother. You would expect a lot of Jesus' influence in anything that James wrote, right? So here you have what? A mercifulness. Real wisdom is not, and sometimes in the world, or sometimes according to sensual desire, certainly in, 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 in what Satan would have people do and live and act towards each other is a mercilessness, you know? We almost admire 
whether it comes out in literature or in theater or in movies or something like that, the person who shows no mercy because they're tough. When did that become something worthy to admire? Jesus is hanging on a cross and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Wow. There's your example. There's your example. Hanging on the cross with the Bible telling us that he had at the tip of his tongue the command of legions of angels to come and stop the entire thing. That's mercy. Real wisdom is full of mercy. Full of good fruits. That's sort of an umbrella term. Good fruits. That is, your life is full of good works. Your speech is full of good, encouraging, gracious words. Your conduct is filled with all sorts of good things that, as the book of Titus says, are good and profitable to men. There's the person who's really wise. You see what you're getting? You're getting a picture here of the person who's really wise. And what does it do? It contrasts with the first part of the chapter, which warns us about the the little rudder that can steer the ship and how a tongue can bring forth so much evil that way. The bit, the bridle in the horse's, the bit in the horse's mouth, you can turn a whole horse one way or the other. The little spark that'll destroy and consume an entire fire. You know, that's the wickedness of, of people. Right? We're told here that actually the real wisdom is not just what you say. The real wisdom is what you do. Your life is full of good fruits. There's the person. Not the person who's constantly running their mouth. Not the person who's saying this or that. The person whose life is full of good fruits. Good works. Things that are useful to others around them. Things that are done in love things that are done for the intentional purpose of glorifying Jesus, the life that's full of them. There's the wise life. Without partiality and without hypocrisy. What is partiality, right? We're told earlier in the book to hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ without partiality. You understand? Towards rich and poor. You see? Partiality was that illustration of like, if a poor man comes in and he's not dressed well, you say, ah, go stand over there in the corner. But the rich man comes in and you say, ah, come and sit over here by me. That's showing partiality. God shows no such partiality. Right? Nor should we show partiality. Real wisdom is shown in the life of a person who treats everybody else fairly and without hypocrisy what's hypocrisy hypocrisy is basically being an actor talking the talk maybe the greatest violation there's all sorts of wickedness we do with our tongues we gossip we slander we lie maybe the worst thing of all is hypocrisy so when we say one thing and live another Right? The complete lack of integrity between word and deed. Real wisdom is without hypocrisy. Now, there you get the little snapshot of false wisdom and real wisdom. False wisdom is rooted in this world. It's rooted in our own desires. 
and it's rooted even in the influence of Satan himself, and the fruit of it is envy, self-seeking, confusion, and every evil thing. But real wisdom is what? First of all, pure, and then all those other things. You see it in the life of the truly wise person, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Tie it all back to the beginning of the chapter. There's the person who maybe is ready to take on being a teacher of others. Bridle the tongue and show their wisdom by their conduct. Bridle your tongue and show your wisdom by your conduct. All of this comes from the influence of Jesus in our lives. It's why you must walk closely with Him. The last statement in all of this, in verse 18, elaborates on this peaceableness because it just must be so important. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What does that mean? Well, you see the very familiar axiomatic concept of sowing and reaping there, right? The reaping, that is the fruit. Fruit is the result of something, right? So in other words, the fruit of righteousness. What produces fruit? What produces righteousness? It's when a particular thing is sown. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, the person who sows peace reaps what? Righteousness. And that shows what? True wisdom. With your words and with your deeds, you can sow conflict, you can sow dispute, you can sow discord, you can sow trouble, and all of that comes out of a proud heart that simply desires its own best, or with the same words and deeds, you can sow peace. Reconciliation, love, brotherhood, sisterhood, a oneness among believers, mercy towards others, even a willingness to yield. The person who sows peace reaps what? Righteousness. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the final word of it all is the person of true wisdom is a person who seeks and pursues Peace. Peace among brethren, first of all. Peace where possible with everyone. So, what is the bottom line of all of this? We are shown that real wisdom is not just in the person who can bring it forth with words. Real wisdom is seen. Wisdom that is from God is that which shows up in the conduct of a true believer. Walk closely with Jesus and pursue that wisdom. Examine yourselves, pray to God, and in my life and yours, may it be so. Let's stand up and sing our last hymn for the day.